0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I have one question for us to think about today. And the question is this. How should we respond to the needs of suffering Christians? How should we respond to the needs of suffering Christians? Let me pray for us and then we'll come into um, God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning as we hear from our brother about the ministry ahead and the challenges ahead, but yet we know we have an everlasting God. Father, we pray this morning that you prepare our minds, our hearts, and our hands, that God, we can understand, we can respond in our hearts, and we can Respond in actions. In Jesus' name, Amen. How should we respond to the needs of suffering Christians? Now, just a few years ago, um, ISIS had a genocide of Christians, or there was a whole range that we remembered the Middle East, and um, in 2014, there were hundreds of thousands of Christians who had to overnight get out of Mosul. And no churches or towns were actually prepared for it. In fact, there was a priest by the name, Father Douglas, that he said in 2014, in his town of Erbil, overnight there were 75,000 people that escaped and come to them. A lot of them are Christians and some of them are not. And his church was kind of modestly resourced but they they try to take in as many as they can in their church compound, and they took in about 400 people. And uh, as we last heard from him this year, that they are still probably uh, holding about 400 people in their church compound. But you know what? In the reality, this is merely an iceberg of the sufferings that Christians are facing in this world. Because just check the annual World Watch list, or if you're your Google person just checked the worst place to be a Christian, <laughs> or brother who have told you where it is, uh, you see plenty, plenty of information about Christians who are suffering. And this is the reality. The reality is this, that in places where Christians are being persecuted, Christians suffer. But in these same places, when there is a famine, or when there's a natural disaster, and when resources are scarce, you can imagine who will not get the resources. So suffering Christians faces a lot of difficulties because of their identity. So today's question is, how should we respond to suffering Christians? The reality of Christian suffering is not a new thing, it's not a recent thing because Google came out or some organizations start reporting. It happened the moment Christianity occurred. In fact, today's passage points to the very event where Christians suffer in Jerusalem. As Jews, and this is where Paul wants to answer this question as well: How should we respond to the needs of suffering Christians? You know, in Paul's letter to, to the Church of Corinth in this second uh, Corinthians, he spent two of his chapters. You know, chapters are quite precious. Paul spent two chapters trying to appeal for, uh, worldwide appeal for Jerusalem Christians who are in great need because of a severe famine that happened in AD 40 and 50s. And you read briefly of this even as you go to Romans 15 in the coming week. But in this chapter and in this book, the backdrop of the passage, Paul, he's appealing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians uh, one of the top three economic centers of that time and when the crisis came and the appeal went out, they were actually the first to say, Paul, we're going to contribute, we're going to um, provide the needs of the Jewish Christians and because of their raising of hands, the other Christians around also volunteered, including the Macedonians who themselves are in poverty, but say, Paul, we too want to give and they gave more than Paul would have dared to ask of them. But now a year has passed. No, the exciting news has become old news. And the contribution has gone down. And their commitment um, widening in gap. And that's when Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. Urging them to finish what they're passionately committed to do for the suffering Christians. So this morning's passage, Paul is more than merely asking for contributions. He wants to point out. Three things in today's passage. The first is, as he calls out for them to once again have a generous giving, he wants to show them that actually generous giving results in a generous harvest, which at the end points to the world that we have a generous God. Okay, so there are three things in today's passage. He's calling at first for generous giving, but then it points to actually a result of generous harvest. And at the end of the day, the world will see that we have a generous God. So follow me in these uh, three sections of today's passage. Let's begin with um, the first exaltation in verse 6 to 7 on generous giving or generous sowing. Verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now Paul begins with kind of a very familiar picture. It, for, for their time, farming is quite normal, not in Singapore, but to them, sowing and harvesting is a common thing. And so he says, remember this, or in other words, folks, you all know this. Those who sow sparingly, they, they, reap, they reap sparingly. But those who sow generously will reap a generous harvest. And so Paul appealed to Christians, to the Corinthians, you guys should sow generously. That is give to the needs of the Jerusalem Christians who are suffering because the farming season has begun. So Paul's letter, as he talks about giving generously, notice one thing. He does not mention any figures. He does not define generosity based on how much. He defines generosity looking at the heart. So look at three. Three ingredients that defines generosity and it's got nothing to do with what you put in an envelope. Look at it with me. Verse 3. Ah, verse 7, sorry. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, the first ingredient, verse 7, you give what you have decided in your heart to give. A generous giving is one that is done thoughtfully. That you have actually thought through it before you give. I, I don't know about you, but um I feel really uneasy whenever there's impulsive uh um, use of resources. Uh, my wife whenever she sends me to NTUC she'll give me a checklist okay to tell me exactly what to buy because otherwise I'll end up with desserts for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Okay, and she doesn't even have to cook, right? Everything's instant pizzas or whatever. So she'll give me a list, but impulsive Spending, uh, is, is not, is not a good thing. Or impulsive giving. Have you ever given to people who come to the street and ask you for money and you don't even know what you're putting in for? Is it a build, uh, a religious building for a different religion or is it for a school building? Or what is it for? Uh, I've done that before, right? When seeing a student coming in, I was like, guilty not giving to a student wearing uniform, or perhaps I saw the Red Sea of 20 of them behind. I said, better give the first one to put an amulet on my, on my t-shirt before I cross the Red Sea, <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but, but impulsive giving, um, without thoughtfulness, uh, is not generosity. The second ingredient we look at it is that a generous giving is actually done willingly look at verse 7 again look at verse 7 not reluctantly or under compulsion our giving should be done willingly and not under compulsion or pressure because the reality is this unwilling giving has zero value to you no matter how much you give if it's unwilling it, it adds no value to a single bit of your life so paul says the giving should be thoughtful, but it should also be willing. Because if you give unwillingly, you'll be thinking, Oh, why did I give that? Oh, why did I give this? You start becoming even more unsatisfied. So it's better off that you don't, isn't it? But it should be given willingly. The third ingredient is this. Look at verse 7 again. It says, For God loves a cheerful giver. The third ingredient of a generous giving is to be done cheerfully. You know, you can see a cheerful giver and you can see a beautiful picture. If you have kids around you before, it doesn't have to be yours. You can imagine when you see a kid having a chocolate or ice cream, right? And he comes to dad or mom or uncle, auntie or grandpa. Grandma, do you want to have the first lick or something? He's like, oh, even if you've got diabetes, you'll almost be tempted to have the ice cream. right? Because that generous giving is such a beautiful sight. And God loves cheerful giver. One that is done cheerfully. So, there are three ingredients to a generous giving. It's not the amount. It's the heart. Which is, first of all, it's done thoughtfully. You have actually thought through it. Second is to done willingly. You give willingly. And third is done cheerfully. Someone once described Christian giving this way. We should not only deal out bread, but we should draw our souls the hungry. We should not only deal up bread, I've done my deal, but to draw your soul to the hungry. That's what generous giving is. It's done thoughtfully, willingly, and cheerfully. You no, know, as we pause here, we think, oh, Paul, is this what you're trying to kind of motivate Corinthians or Christians to do? No, because the rest of the passage, Paul wants to point out that what is the value of a generous giving. He moves on to a generous harvest. Look at the second point. A generous harvest. Look at verse 8 with me. What is a generous harvest? Paul says, And God is able to bless you abundantly. Okay, look at this verse carefully because you can miss really easily. In fact, it's a good verse to say, Come on, give it to the Lord and give it to your pastor and God will <laughs> bless you, right? Uh, there will be... A, Excellent passage uh, to do a kind of fundraising. But can you imagine Paul saying that to the Corinthians, who are already wealthy, but plenty of problems in their church. Can you imagine Paul telling this to the Corinthian Christians, where the rich are already eating, not in communion with the poor people. And now the rich can get even richer and the poor. Paul is not talking about just... Give so God can financially give to you. But if that's not the case, what is Paul's saying? So we have to read in context, right? Read verse 8 with me again. What is Paul saying? And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul's emphasis here is that when we so generously God is actually able to let us do even more good works. Let me say that again. God is able to increase our ability to do even more good works because it started with the heart and God is going to expand it. How does God increase our ability to do good works? Well, this passage, it it, it obviously talks about some financial giving, right? But God has gifted us more than just money. God has given many of us years of life, health, time, gifts, things in different things. And uh, for Singaporeans, we are gifted with at least two languages, which a lot of countries do not have. And some of us will even gain rich Christian life experience that can be used to bless many others. God can multiply the good works we have, and the result is that we have an ever-growing reflection of God's righteousness they will last for eternity that's what verse 9 is pointing to us that our lives will reflect God's righteousness that endures forever in fact using farming terms again right this is what paul is saying in verse 9 and 10 paul is saying first of all god generously provides you with the seed right first then look at it he supplies seed bread increase your store of seed so god has given you the seed and when you sow it out God uses that to enlarge our harvest of righteousness. Verse 10 again, you see, he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Or Verse 11 says you will be enriched so that you can be generous on every occasion. So such is God's way of using our generous giving to kind of enlarge our ability to do good works and enrich or enlarge our righteousness in a sense by using what we are given to increase and build on his kingdom. Which is an amazing thing. Because the reality is, God doesn't need us to do any good work because He's kind of short of money or short of things. But He gives us into our store so that when we give it out and use it and build His kingdom, that God help us to be able to see the glory and the goodness of God. I don't know how, have you ever experienced that when you give to the Lord or you pray about something, and when something happens, you get way much joy than someone else who doesn't. You no, know, just Friday, there was this account of this lady in Pakistan. She was accused of blasphemy. Her name is Asia BB. So, y'all might have heard of her name here and there. So, it was her death sentence and that was her last chance for appeal. And, you no, know, open doors, barnabas, fun. A lot of places are calling. Please pray for her. And guess what on Friday? One of the three judges at the Supreme Court say, I want out. I don't want to be in this. So suddenly now it's being postponed. Her death her death row is once again weighed on and we continue to pray. But notice that if you're someone who has been involved in praying for this lady, you'll be saying, isn't this God's work? Isn't that God who is working on His people's heart? That people who are unconnected become connected for the glory of God. So your generosity will result in something else. Paul wants to say, he says that as these things happen, your generosity, look at verse 11, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So when God has called us to give a generous giving, and you start to have a generous harvest, and suddenly the world will start to realize that God is a generous God. Look on with me. There are three ways in which God is being glorified with thanksgiving, just because we so generously look at verse twelve with me, the first one. Paul says this this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Imagine this God's people crying out to God, God, please help me. And somehow God has called us for generous giving. And we give and the resources reach to Christians. And they say, God. You answered prayer. It could be financial, it could be emotional, it could be all kinds of support, and they give thanks to God. That is a thanksgiving that glorifies God. Can you imagine when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's saying this, Corinthians, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, that you and them, not good friends, okay? Christians, not good friends. But as you give to them, They start to look at you and they thank God for you. Can you see what is happening to this kind of unnatural but supernatural connection of Christians? Look at verse 24. In fact, Paul says this, right? This is to the Corinthians. And the Jews, the Jewish Christians, their prayers for you and their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Can can you see what's happening? That the Jewish Christians, who otherwise have not much connection with the Gentile Christians in Jerusalem, they suddenly look at the Gentile Christians and say, God, they are your people, and you have used them to bless us. God, thank you for the Gentile Christians. And likewise, we will see this even in our world, where you have Christians in persecuted places and say, God, we are the last few. And then God uses some of us writing letters, campaigns or whatever, which if you want to find out, I'll tell you how to find campaigns that you can write to persecuted Christians. And the letters comes in in dozens and hundreds and they say, God, this is not just a few of us. Your kingdom is much bigger and I thank God for you. And you strengthen their faith with that piece of 60 cents or $1 stamp and this little postcard. You could have bring out God's Glory and thanksgiving through that little act. Can you see that what God is using and Paul is telling the Corinthians, the harvest is here, the famine is there, don't miss this opportunity. It's not just about this giving, but it is for you as well to see that God is a glorious God. And this is just the first Thanksgiving. Let me bring to you the second Thanksgiving. Look on with me in the next portion, verse 13. Verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. You know, when other Christians start hearing about the generosity or the works of Christians, they get spurred on. Because that is what they want to do as well. And they say, we too want to get involved. Imagine the time of the Corinthians when they gave out of their abundance. The Macedonians give out of their poverty and say, God, we do not want to miss out on this opportunity. We too want to give to the Jewish Christians for whom Christ has come. And can you imagine that kind of thanksgiving? And can you imagine as this kind of weird relationship happening and the non-Christians look and say, what is this happening? Come on. I've never experienced this and those who are doomed for eternal darkness because of the relationship and the generosity and the harvest that's happening come to Christ and say, can I have that as well? And this has happened in Mosul, in Erbil and in a lot of places where, where even their own people reject them, the churches are bringing them out of their poverty and they say, we want to know this Jesus. It wasn't what we heard about at all. So second sowing, uh, second um, thanksgiving through others who have witnessed it, give glory to God. But I want to bring, bring it to one last thanksgiving, and it's got totally to do with us. This is something that is totally for us, that God has given. So look at verse 13 again, I've, uh, I think I've underlined that, but let me read that to you. It serves us more than anyone else. Verse 13, Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. You know what? God is being glorified with thanksgiving when our sowing actually reveals our own thanksgiving for the gospel of Christ. You know what the gospel has done? The gospel has not only just saved us from sin and death, the gospel not only unites us with other Christians, the gospel has enabled us to be involved in God's work such that we can say that this is the gospel truth and we believe in God. And our thanksgiving will be a glorious thing for God because we are responding not as a way to get to heaven but because god has given us everything and we say god what else can we not give you because even the store of seeds are from you no wonder verse 15 ends this way Uh, if you look at your verse it says thanks be to god for such indescribable gift and what's this indescribable gift it is the gospel of the lord jesus christ It makes all things possible. So as a conclusion, as we look at this vast field of God and God's kingdom, let's go back to our first question. How should we respond to the needs of suffering Christians? Paul calls us to a generous sowing. And by now we know it's not what the amount you put in, but it's really this part that shows whether it's generous or it's not. And Paul called us that when we do that, expect a generous harvest. Expect that there will be generous harvest, that God will grow our hearts in our ability to do good works. God will use what we have given to build on His kingdom such that our righteousness that has been given. God give us that ability to grow in our righteousness. And God will build His kingdom and we get to have that front view of what God is doing. You know, the Corinthians started well. Paul is asking them, continue well and finish well. You know, as I come to BTPC, one of the things that was really encouraged is that we we really focus on missions and we really think about the persecuted Christians. I think what I hope this passage comes in is to encourage us to continue well and that we we'll all finish well. That we we'll all finish well. Because Paul says this, he says this in many places, but another place he says this is Galatians 6, verse 9. He says this, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, as I close this time, let me bring you back to our uh, Father Douglas, um, Bezzi. You remember him? Earlier this year, he made a trip to, to America to kind of appeal for support for his work and also for the displaced Christians. He, he, he said this in an interview and I, I put it up there, but let me read this to you. Um, do I have it? Yes, let me read this and uh, you can follow me. In the in- interview he said, When I talk to a Christian, I'm always saying, Look, I'm not here begging for help because this is your duty. We are the same body. If one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. We belong to each other. But my people, we need hope. We need a future. I put this in three words. Pray for us, help us, and save us. My people, were full of dignity when you offer help. We look to your face because it's important to us to say, when I was in need, you helped me so I don't want to forget your face. We never forget who stood with us. We are going to forget and forgive who persecuted us, who abandoned us. Those we are going to forget. But we are not going to forget who stands with us. How should we respond to the suffering Christians and to God's greater kingdom? As I close this time, there are are a lot of ways that we can do it. I'll suggest some, but I'm sure you can think of more as you look at what kind of seed God has given you. For some of us who have time, perhaps it is to write to a suffering Christian. Um, Look for me, I'll tell you how to do it. Perhaps it is to write to a missionary. Perhaps it is to support those who are going to places where there are far and few suffering Christians. Or perhaps it's just coming first week of each month to pray for the persecuted Christians every first week at two o'clock here. Uh, just coming for an hour, pray for the persecuted Christians. Or perhaps it is to give financially um, into places that actually focus on persecuted Christians. I think there are some frontline magazine I saw downstairs. Uh, there are plenty of that for persecuted Christians. Just pick one up. Uh, I wasn't put there by me, but I think those are great starter kits.